Well, each week, the only thing we have to hold out and what we gladly hold out is the gospel. The good news that we can have life with God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's that very good news that forms us as the people of God, that fuels us as the people of God. And it's that truth that holds no matter the circumstances. The gospel says we have life with God because of what Jesus has already done. We get to step into his finished work and so we belong now. No matter what's going on around us. No matter what we are dealing with. This means then that as the people of God who are formed and fueled by the gospel, that we can come together and be honest. We can come together and be weak. We can be broken. We can be sinful. We can be weary. We can mourn. We can not be okay. We can be. And together with our various circumstances and all that's happened, we get to take a congregational breath in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we do this by turning our attention and our affection to Him turning to his word and beholding his glory. In Mark chapter 4 this morning is our text. Jesus tells two parables of a kingdom that doesn't end. It's bigger than us and outlives our earthly existence. Mark chapter 4 verse 26 says that he said that the kingdom of God is if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, and he knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground... Is the smallest of the seeds of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes large in all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. And with many such parables, he spoke the word of God to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. So far, the advancement of the kingdom of God has taken on a very interesting strategy. One might call it confusing. If you're going to advance a kingdom, what you don't want to do is make sure that you plant in unfruitful soils. And yet we saw a parable of a lot of unfruitful soils, almost a field of rejection. You don't want to advance a kingdom by taking the light of that kingdom and then having it hidden or at least veiled somewhat. And the parables in chapter 4 so far have spoken to a lot of these things. Unfruitful soils, rejection, something being veiled. Seems confusing, like this isn't how we move a kingdom forward. But God is gracious in this advancement strategy. And that in the midst of this, that's obscure and veiled and hard to understand, there's room for faith. He doesn't just come in his fullness of light and blow us away. He could do that. He comes in in ways that we can understand and know that we might have faith in him and be a part of his kingdom. 
But as we're looking at chapter 4 and the parables that are going on in this field of rejection and this temporary veiled light, we must not let that lead us into thinking that this kingdom is impotent, without power. And Jesus assures us with these two parables that the kingdom of God is mysteriously powerful and it will grow exponentially. You see, the kingdom of God is, is God's reign. It's His rule. It's His reign and rule over His people and His place. It's Him having relationship and living life with His people. And the parables describe the nature of that kingdom. And it's good that that is described for us because the nature of that kingdom is confusing. It doesn't make perfect sense to us. It's not announced the way we would announce it. He doesn't trot in an army ready to go to battle. He doesn't set up a government, a political wing to to reign and rule. He goes through the waters. He starts proclaiming the kingdom of God's at hand. He gathers 12 B-team disciples. And so Jesus telling us the nature of the kingdom is actually really helpful for us. His living it out helps us. And here he helps us again. He says in verse 26 that the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. The kingdom of God isn't compared to a mighty mountain, a rushing river, a shooting star, but a seed, a seed, an unspectacular item. And he says it's like this seed that's scattered on the ground. Scattering is normal. That's an everyday activity. They would have understood that really well. Happens all the time in their setting, Mark's original audience and Jesus' original audience. Scattering of the seed. It's normal, everyday activity, completely unremarkable. Doesn't take someone special to do this. Takes someone willing. Takes someone who's just a warm body who knows how to just do this. (laughs) Scatters the seed. And the parable of the sower in the background, I think, helps inform here what is going on. And that I don't think it's too far to say that what is sown here in this parable is the word. The good news that the kingdom of God has arrived in the person of Jesus. And that he is sending out this invitation that people can follow him, have relationship with him. So I think that fits what's being sown here. So the word of the good news of the kingdom of God being at hand is going out. Jesus is inviting people to live life with him under his good reign and his good rule as the king of the kingdom. And as this good news is sown, there's no mention in this parable of different soils. It's not the point here. There's a different purpose and point to this parable than thinking about, well, what's the soil like? There's no mention of a strategy of it's sown, and then then you go in afterwards with the right kind of questions and fertilizer and water to make sure that it grows and is nurtured the right way. No, the one activity other than sowing that is mentioned here is sleeping. Verse 27, this farmer or sower sleeps and he rises night and day. His activity is that he sows, very unremarkable, and that he sleeps. Again, unremarkable. Sleeping and rising are normal daily occurrences and necessary occurrences for every single human being. Now, Sleeping and rising can be done strategically. You can strategically plan when to go to sleep and when to rise. You could probably even time that with when crops grow or don't grow. You could probably work these things together. But sleeping and rising aren't strategic in nature. 
They're just necessary. So you can try to be as strategic as you want, but you're going to run into the inevitable that you're going to need to rest. It's to be human. It's necessary. So some do it well and some are restless, but all of us have to sleep. So it's not some sort of special activity that the sower is going through here. He's sowing and he's sleeping. It's necessary. And so the work so far of the sower is just this. He, he sows seed and then he sleeps. Very normal, unspectacular, unremarkable. And yet look what happens at the end of verse 27. And the seed sprouts and it grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself. The first the blade, then the ear, and then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe... At once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. So if we follow the life of this seed, it gets sown. There is some sort of time. It is unknown. We don't know. Then it sprouts. Then it goes to maturity. Then it goes all the way to the harvest. And it is harvested. And the sower is stumped by this. You ever been there? Have you ever been stumped like, with the question, like, how did that even happen? I have cleaned out the car before. And if you pull the, the car seats up and you start looking under seats, like there, is a, there are more Cheerios there, than I, Cheerios there than I know what to do with. Like I, I, I think to myself, I'm like, how does that happen? I, did more Cheerios do not go in the mouth than are on the ground, clearly. Like the percentage here can't be great. <laughs> how does that happen? And that's where the sower is. He's stumped. He, he goes out there and there's growth. And it says he knows not how, which I love that phrase. He just goes out there and he sees it and he doesn't even know how it happened. He is completely stumped. He weighs the events. All right, so here's what I did. I sowed and then I went to bed. And then I came back and like there's something growing. A harvest came. So he wasn't necessarily strategic. He wasn't ingenious. He didn't have the best farming techniques. It doesn't say anything about his work effort. We don't even know that he was really given it all that he had, and he was pouring his life into this harvest and into the seeds and making sure they grow. We don't get any of that. In fact, the, most of the episode is with him absent. He's not even around. The, the growth, then, is impossible to adequately explain as a result of the farmer's own work, as a result of his own doing. There's no way to say how that seed sprouted and grew and then the harvest came by his work. It wasn't because he fertilized at the right time. It wasn't because he planted in the right season or the right soil. It wasn't because of any specific way that he sowed things or it even wasn't because he slept. All he did was put a seed in the ground and he slept and it grew. So how did the seed grow? And it's becoming uh, quite obvious how to explain this. That if it wasn't the farmer's doing, if it wasn't the sower's doing, then that seed growing, it must have power. Seed must have power. And that's exactly what is said. If you look in verse 28, the earth produces by itself. It's a great word there. It helps us out, I think, there. It's automate, almost like automatic. It does it on its own. That's what happens. The earth just does this. This is power here. Something happens to bring growth that's separate from the power and the work of the sower who is sleeping when this happens. The seed contains power. It contains the power of life and generation. It comes up and it has this power that's, that's independent of the sower, independent of his, effort, of his efforts, and that grows up to a great harvest. And Jesus says that's what the kingdom of God is like. That's what it's like. The word is sown and it has power to grow and it just leaves sowers confused. 
don't even know what happened. One of the best sowers ever, I would contend, was the Apostle Paul. Everywhere he went, he was bold with the gospel. He often went with this gospel knowing that when he spoke this gospel, he was going to be rejected. That he was going to be beaten. That he was going to be thrown out. And this happened time and time again. And he keeps going. And he keeps sowing. And here's what he says about his sowing. If you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, one of the best sowers in the world says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. God gave the growth. God is the one that brings the growth. This is coming from, when we could say in spiritual terms, one of the best sowers and farmers that we've ever seen in this world. And he says, oh yeah, I watered, and or Paul's watered, I planted, but God gave the growth. He could have said, I slept, and God gave the growth. Martin Luther once quipped that he studied and taught, and the Reformation just happened while he was sleeping or drinking. He's a sower. He knows how it happens. He studies and thinks and he sows seed and then it just happens. The, the parables that describe the nature of the kingdom of God, in large part, if you've been with us through chapter 4, uh, do not emphasize any sowers. There are no strategies. There are no character issues that Jesus addresses. He doesn't say, let's talk about the sower and your character so that makes sure that that enriches the seed that you put down into the soil. doesn't do that. He doesn't say, here's the steps that you need to take to get to the sowing. Or, you know what, you need to take a look at your effort. And if the farmer would just toil and labor, if there's some sweat on his brow and he puts a seat, then the sweat can become fertilizer and water for you. He doesn't say any of that. He doesn't give any sowing tips. Maybe he'll get to that. He'll say some of those things later on. All that's implied here is that there is sowing going on. Jesus' point is not the nature of sowing and sowers, but the nature of the kingdom of God. He's trying to point out that it's the, the powerful word that's the point, that it's the thing being sown. It's powerful and sufficient. And the sower's main role then is to sow and get out of the way, go to sleep. And let the seed that actually has the power do some work. I mean, how instructive is that for us as Christians? How instructive is that for churches? Full of all sorts of clever tricks and gimmicks to make things better. When what we need to be better at is sowing faithfully and moving out of the way. And learning how to sleep well. So we're not emphasized here. Why not? Because the sower doesn't produce the growth. The sower doesn't produce the harvest. We look back at the, one of the best sowers ever in Paul, and he says, you know, I watered. And Apollos, he, he watered, and we planted together. God gave the growth. And so what does he say in 1 Corinthians 3, 7? He says, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He doesn't say, well, I'm an apostle, and Apollos, he's a great teammate in this. He's a strong man. We've discipled him. We've brought him along, and he comes in with us. And then, like, we got a power team now, and when we plant and water together, boom, that's when it's going to happen. 
Or he doesn't say, you know how we, we, our strategy was to go to the, 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 the Jewish people first. We'd go to the synagogues. And then, then from there, we'd go here. And then for sure, you know, like one of the two, we know we're going to get growth. He doesn't say that. He says, uh, we watered and planted, but God gives the growth. So he who plants and he who waters isn't anything. Nothing. And Paul's understanding that he isn't anything led him to some really glorious gospel freedom in his ministry. You see, he knew it's the power of God that makes the soil fruitful and produces grain and a fruitful harvest. And so, he can sleep. He could sow the gospel and move on with freedom, without guilt, in his efforts and what happened there. So as long as he sowed faithfully, he could move on in freedom because he knew, as he told the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he says this in verse 25, And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone out proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. He's leaving them. Therefore I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. How could he sow and leave and say, I'm never going to see you again? When you're the Apostle Paul, the great apostle, like you're, you're pretty necessary to the work. But Paul says, actually, I'm not anything. And I'm clear of the, the guilt and blood of you all because I've given you what? The word. The whole counsel of God. So he sows and he moves on with freedom. He sows and he's willing to sow and able to sow and, and wants to sow what? The folly of the message of the gospel. That is that we have a crucified Messiah. He could sow that in freedom, knowing that that will be rejected by some, but to some it's the power of God unto salvation. He could sow in a way that could be glorying in his own weakness. He could say, I, I, I know that I'm weak. And in fact, I, I actually exult in my weakness. I'm thankful for my weakness. I glory in my weakness because in my weakness, because I'm not anything, God's power is on display. He's free. Paul could sow the gospel with hope, with confidence, certain that it's the gospel that is the power of God, Romans 1.16 says, unto salvation. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So Paul could sow and then go to sleep and sleep really, really well. And church, that same gospel freedom, that same gospel sleep is available for us and must be ours as we carry out the Great Commission. That truth remains, that the sower isn't anything. Not that we're pretty awesome, but that we still need God a little bit. But that we aren't anything. And that the kingdom of God is still growing. And the harvest will be ready. And that's not a very flattering reality, but it's a very freeing one. It's a very hopeful one. Because it's not about how clever we are, it's not about how strong we are, it's not about how winsome we are, not about how hardworking we are, not about how strategic we are or gifted we are, and we could go on and on. If the kingdom of God is dependent upon those things, then God help us. It won't advance far. But God gives growth. God shows power in weakness. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So we sow and we sleep. And we need to know the nature of the kingdom of God and find freedom and hope that that's enough. That if we're faithful to sow, then we can go to sleep and rest really well because it's not reliant upon us. Amen. Sowing and sleeping, that's our strategy. Amen. 
It's our strategy because we don't rely on ourselves. We rely on the one who brings salvation, and God will work in ways that we know not how. It's beautiful then, because what it also produces is not just a harvest, but sowers who are just continually in awe of the one who would bring about a harvest they don't even know about. How did that even happen? And what do they do? They glory then in their God. And in this way, the kingdom of God moves forward and is advanced. Well, Jesus further helps us in understanding the nature of the kingdom of God by then moving from one seed to another. In verse 30, it says that with what can we compare the kingdom of God? What parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of a mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of the seeds on the earth. I put a picture up here of a a mustard seed. It's quite small. You can barely see it. That black dot on the finger is a mustard seed. And if you think about that seed, no one would guess that that seed would produce something even remotely substantial. Like if you're betting... And you're thinking, like, that thing, maybe it comes up out of the ground. Maybe there's some grass there. I don't, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't think that it would grow into anything substantial. Something similar might have been said about Jesus and his ragged band of disciples. Speaks of a kingdom. You know, I look around, and all I see is, well, there's a guy that used to be a tax collector. There's some fishermen. Let's just let it happen. Probably not going to be any problem. Jesus, this is a man who was born in a manger. Nothing great comes from there. Nazareth, we know nothing good comes from there. That's what everybody would say around the town. They all look pretty normal. These 12 guys are kind of a random group of guys. There's no army here. There's no governmental power here. He's not overthrowing Rome here. This is nothing to worry about. It's pretty small, insignificant. No one would have guessed that Jesus and these 12 guys that he has with him were going to then advance in substantial ways. And turn the world upside down. He looked at him and said, that's as small as a mustard seed. Insignificant, unimportant, small. And the mustard seed is one of the smallest created. But when it was sown, verse 32 says, When it's sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. So it starts out really small, and it grows into something substantial. It grows into something large. It's an almost imperceptible seed. Like if you just picked up some dirt, you probably wouldn't see it in there. If you saw it on your finger, you'd dust it off and act like it was not even there. It's easily ignored. It's underestimated, undervalued for sure. But Jesus says it's a seed that grows exponentially larger than what it starts out as. And it actually grows out to have really large branches. Really substantial growth here. A seed that's smaller than most others produces something that's larger. So large that birds can even come in and find shade and make nests. The seed that once could have been bird food sown along the path. Birds could have swooped it up, no problem. Tiniest bird could get this seed in their mouth. Turns around and becomes bird shade. One author says it this way, that the greater point here, however is that the kingdom of God arises from obscurity and insignificance, and that which no one would imagine, or if one did, would seem utterly impossible, will in time loom inescapably before us. That God's reign will not only be more real than the world can imagine, but it will also be larger and more encompassing. And Jesus might just show us in this parable how large and how encompassing this might be. 
And see, I think he, he might allude here to an Old Testament text. There's an interesting detail in this parable of the mustard seed. It grows, it's small and it grows large. That's interesting when you take notes. But it also then talks about birds coming and finding shade and making nests. Now that's abnormal, even abnormal for mustard trees. They're not known as great bird sanctuaries. So why is this detail there? I think there's possibly from Jesus an allusion to some Old Testament texts where birds find shelter in branches. And in the Old Testament, the allusions there are the, the trees are kingdoms and the birds are nations. They're people who are finding rest and belonging in the trees. You see this in Daniel chapter 4. Daniel says this of Nebuchadnezzar. He has a dream. And in Daniel chapter 4, Daniel says, you're like this great tree and birds of lots of different places come and find rest in you. In Ezekiel 31, you see something similar. But I think the one that most closely lines up to what Jesus is saying here is found in Ezekiel chapter 17. In Ezekiel chapter 17, we actually have a, a similar genre. He's telling a parable. He's describing in this parable some judgment, but he's pointing to a future messianic ideal age to come. So we read this, something that goes from something small to something large in Ezekiel chapter 17. Look in verse 22 with me. It says, Thus says the Lord, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. And I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one. And I myself will plant it on high and loft, on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel I will plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree and make high the low tree. Dry up the green one and make, dry the, tree, make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it. Now, there are some differences there to be sure, but there are a lot of similarities as well. God takes something small, a sprig, and he plants it on a mountain where it grows large. It goes from something small to something large, and something that's tiny to something that's very, very fruitful, and in all of it is by the work of God. It's God's work. He's the one that does it. He takes it, he plants it, it produces because of what he has done. It's all about his work and his doing. Birds then, also that we see in Mark, of all sorts, they find their home here. All the other trees, all the other kingdoms are humbled here. Those that are low, he raises up, and those that are high, he cuts down. He humbles all. This is a very mustard seedish parable in Ezekiel, a very Jesus ministry type parable in Ezekiel. Starts small, but its reach then extends to all kinds. And I don't think it's any stretch to see these as connected Jesus could be alluding to this very passage to the fact that the kingdom of God's growth will get so big that it's going to make branches a place of belonging for all kinds of people, from all kinds of nations. Now, whether that was what Jesus was alluding to or not, we don't know for sure. But we do know that that's exactly what has happened. We do know that the kingdom of God sprouted and its branches got really large. And it spread out so far that the nations came and they found rest, belonging, a place to be in this kingdom. What started with a few grew exponentially. The barely noticeable seed of 12 disciples changed the world and turned it upside down. You see, after Jesus' death and even after his resurrection, the disciples were still behind closed doors because they were afraid. They were waiting 
and afraid, not quite sure what was next. But Jesus did, and he told them. In Acts chapter 1, he told them in verse 8, here's what you're going to do, here's what you're going to be. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the book of Acts then records gospel growth at Pentecost 3,000 are saved from all sorts of different nations. Birds of lots of different feathers flew together that day. And then that spread. It went out from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. And by the end of the book of Acts, gospel branches are far-stretching. We have inroads of the gospel throughout the Middle East, reaching and going even further into Europe Rome, Spain, Asia is being hit. There are inroads to Africa as well. The gospel is just spreading. And it kept growing and growing and growing. In 1858, in the United States, in Charlottesville, Virginia. Do we have any UVA people anymore? We used to have several. There was a chaplain at the University of Virginia. His name was John Broadus. He was preaching the gospel faithfully as a chaplain, trying to see gospel growth there. And he held some evangelistic meetings for students, both male and female. And there was a small group of, of female students that, that started praying for, for one other female student that they figured would never come to these meetings, would never come to Christ. Uh, take notice of small groups praying and what happens. Often it's quite significant, mustard seedish. Small group were praying, and they figured that this person, her name was Charlotte, would never come. The night before the meeting, Star Charlotte couldn't sleep. There's a barking dog outside her window. Kept her up all night, and it's just made her think, maybe I should go. Maybe I should give this a consideration. So she goes to this meeting. Her words, I went to the service to scoff and returned to my room to pray all night. Small seed. One guy wants to see the gospel go forward on a campus. A small group of people decide we want this person to come to faith. We'll pray for this. A dog outside a window starts barking. Thoughts, small thoughts. Maybe I'll give this a consideration. Then all of a sudden it turns into all night prayer. That seed grew, added a scoffer. But just like the kingdom of God, it didn't stop there. See, this woman, she was four foot three, so she even in herself was small. So it's a good analogy here as well. And she was just one small conversion, right? But her life went on to have large kingdom impact. See, I called her Charlotte. You know her as Lottie. Lottie Moon. She goes to China to proclaim the gospel, served there for 39 years until she was almost 72 years old. One Small woman, all four foot three inches of her. She helped establish a church in an unreached area that after about 20 years baptized more than 1,000 Christians. And today, we have the seed continue to grow. If you're known, familiar with Southern Baptist churches, every Christmas they have what they call the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, where every dollar given to that specific Thing, named in her honor goes completely to foreign mission fields, 100% of it, and her kingdom impact continues to grow. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's small, 
but it is powerful. And the branches have reached out far and wide to the ends of the earth, even to, shall we say it, Enid. And it just keeps going. Maybe God is using this small place today to even extend some branches to some of you, to give you shade and a place to belong and be home, to have a nest. It happens through small means. Normal people, like us, proclaiming the gospel. Normal prayer, normal proclamation. Maybe a dog barks. We used to have that a lot. Maybe it's getting your attention to help you listen up to the kingdom of God. It happens through small, normal means. And it has small beginnings. And then it starts growing exponentially, individually, and then corporately it does the same thing. That all the while we can now see and look around at evidence, right, that we That people gather to talk about the kingdom of God in Enid, Oklahoma is evidence that the kingdom of God, while it may have had some small beginnings, it started to grow out and it got really big. Enid, Oklahoma has been impacted. Think what hope it offers to us who follow Jesus. The kingdom of God is a kingdom then that won't be destroyed. They've tried. They failed. The word says they'll keep trying. They'll keep failing. Rather than the other kingdoms defeating this kingdom, what we are assured of is that other kingdoms will drop their allegiances and they'll actually turn and they'll become part of this kingdom. They'll find their nest in this kingdom of God. They're going to find, rather than destroying this kingdom, they're actually going to find shelter in it because this kingdom is powerful. So it might have seemed like a confusing strategy talking about unfruitful soils, veiled lights, we're not sure what to do with. But what started small and veiled and obscured grew to be very large. That, as Jesus says in verse 33, that all who are able to hear can now take heart, can now find hope in the greatness and the power of the kingdom of God. Let's bow together.